Hi, I'm Steve Barsh, managing partner of Dream Adventures. Welcome to Dream It Live. Today's show, we're gonna have Sarah Pillmore with us. She's a former VP of Human Resources and Talent Acquisition of two of Expedia Group's premier brands, Hotwire and Car Rentals. She also led global diversity and inclusion strategies when she was at Expedia. She's now CPO, that's a chief people officer at Osler Diagnostics, a health tech company in the UK. She's an advisor to Oxford Sciences Innovation. We'll learn a little bit about what OSI is about in the UK. She's also an active angel investor. On today's show, the topics we are going to hit, we're gonna talk about startups and founders facing a pandemic. So how can founders and startups best deal with well-being during an economic crisis? Something Sarah talks a lot about. How do you keep your team motivated and focused during these challenging times? What about things like imposter syndrome? Tell you the truth, I didn't even know what that was until I was talking to Sarah about it. She's gonna to talk to us about imposter syndrome and how that holds many founders back and how to overcome it. How do you best um, what are some of the best ways to remotely hire employees? There's a lot of people doing Zoom interviews and Zoom onboarding now. What are some best practices around that? And what if you have to face the difficult situation as many companies and startups are doing with a very unfortunate employment statistics coming out today, but what if you have to lay off employees? How do you do that if people are remote? Let's dive in. Sarah, welcome to Dream It Live. How are you? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, great to be here. Coming to you also from outside of Philadelphia. So I think we're probably down the street from each other. So just to go over this, right? So you do a lot of work with two companies in the UK, but you live in Philly. That's a little bit tricky. I do, um, I do well now, I guess it's right. a lot less tricky than it might've been before. But yeah, I mean, right. from a career perspective, I've worked in a whole bunch of different physical places. And I mm -hmm. think as we start talking about what's changing from a work perspective, I think we are living in a world now where people can make decisions for their personal life and their work life. And I talk a lot about work-life integration versus balance because balance right. suggests if I want to have more of this thing, I have to have less of this thing. Uh, right. And I try and be a little bit of a living example of that, keeping my family stable, but also being able to chase opportunities wherever they may be. So I worked for Expedia on the West Coast and kept my family in the Philadelphia area just because we had just gotten settled, had a baby. <laughs> it's a little crazy. And then right. when the opportunity came up to go to Oxford, and we'll talk a lot about what's going on there from an ecosystem perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, it was so exciting. And my instinct was to say to Connor Campbell, the CEO of Osler, look, mm -hmm. I, I this is great. It sounds really exciting, but it's just not going to work for my life. And right. instead, I had a conversation with a really important mentor in my life who said, why don't you write down how it could work mm -hmm. and send that over? And I sent it over to Connor on the plane back from the UK to the States. And he said, mm -hmm. you know, I realize you said this is unconventional, but we're not much for conventional. And if you're up for it, can you start on Monday? Wow. So, this is startup 101, right? I think you have to be willing to take risk and jump into things that really excite you with everything that you got. And That's very cool. the great stuff comes from there. Let's dive in on the startup side, if we could. You know, startups and founders, as all of us today, everyone's facing a pandemic, and it's it's a global, obviously, thing that's going on. So I'd love to talk about first topic is focus on well-being, right? I know it's something that you're passionate about, and I'd love to get your opinions, and I think our audience would love to know, how can founders and startups best deal with well-being during this health and economic crisis? And it would be great if we could start by what do you mean or what do we mean by well-being? What's the topic? Can you help us frame it out? Sure. So I think, you know, when you think about wellness generally, there's a whole person that comes to work when you're talking about an employee. And that person has a personal life. They have a family, perhaps. They have a social life. They have a physical well-being. Um, and when you think about all of those things and what's happening right now, is we have financial situations going on. We have created isolation for folks through necessity from their social lives. A lot mm -hmm. of people are completely separated from their parents, right? And especially people who are ill or immune compromised are even more isolated. So you think about the impact that that has. And then on top of that, our work lives have shifted overnight. And our ability to go to the gym is gone if that's where you used mm -hmm. to go to exercise. And so now what you can even do for your physical well-being is limited. So when I talk about well-being, I talk about the whole picture. And I think mm -hmm. one of the really exceptional things uh, that was done at Expedia is 
we rather than put a set of values out there and say this is who Expedia is, um, a really exceptional communications leader named Sarah Gavin and a woman who does a lot of brand work now, Elisa Humphrey, did a bottoms up analysis of letting the employees tell the organization what Expedia was. And mm -hmm. one of the core things that came out from that was we feel as employees, we can bring our whole selves to work. Now, I've told people there are part of themselves I'd prefer they don't bring to work. Right, right. <laughs> Right. I, I there's some things specific things right. that we can talk about that maybe in the Q and A section that I prefer right. you don't bring to work. But in general, we want people to be able to come as they are. Well, the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is, coming as you are right now could be really tough, and it is kids and families and being stuck with your loved ones who you do love so much, but maybe not this much. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think when we talk about wellness it's inevitably going to blend into the workplace and it encapsulates far more than just mental health. And today is exacerbated by a lot of the things going on in the world that inevitably impact the workforce. Right, so so if I'm a startup or founder, what do I do, right? So, you know, Dream It does, you know, virtual lunches, let's everybody get together and not talk about work. We do virtual happy hours. You know, everybody's trying to, you know, where you're trying to connect and bring your whole self to work, although you're never leaving home. So. So what do I do? Like, what what's the negative impact of all of this? And what, as a founder, as a startup, what do I do? And how do I help my team? See, I think the initial reaction, of course, is to do something. I must be right. doing something. And I think the first step, just like anything else, is to take a moment to just acknowledge it. It's happening. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. all feel out of control. And all we want to do, those of us who are doers, who are leaders, who have made a living by taking action, want to fix it. And the fact of the matter is fixing it is a much broader equation. So the question that I always say to folks is, okay, what problem are we trying to solve for our employees? And can we solve it? Um, and what would success look like? And so if you start at what would success look like, success looks like you have an exceptional organization that can come back to work that is feels as though you've been sensitive to their needs, but also is in a position where from a overall wellness perspective has a time to reflect, to think about optimizing things. And so if you think that what you want is a stronger organization coming out of this, then I think some of the things that you do will be different. And uh, I, you know, I've done a couple of different things with different groups that have been helpful. I think helping people think of small ways that they can make an impact. And we talked with our OSI team collectively about identifying one thing that mm -hmm. each person could do at a micro level that supported the pandemic. Because there are things happening at a global level. Some of our portfolio companies, uh, Vaxitech was in the news yesterday, a very mm -hmm. exciting progress on their clinical trial for the COVID vaccine, which we're really excited about. But when you're not actually working on the COVID vaccine, right. some of your work can feel a little bit less meaningful. And the fact of the matter is, I think if there's anything we can reflect on now is the importance of work and our contribution and how that is part of how we feel good about what we're doing in the world. Removing work generally, stopping work has had such a reverberating negative impact. And so I think if we can stay focused on what are the micro things that you can do, in some cases we had folks share with the group that they looked in their pantry and found food things that they could take to the local food bank or the local food mm -hmm. pantry if you're calling in from the UK. If you identify some of those micro things, you'll feel like you're having an impact. Same thing with your team. I think find some micro things that you can do. Don't pretend like the world is normal. It's not. Acknowledge mm -hmm. where people are. The other thing I really recommend for founders, leaders at this point in time it's easy to feel like your job is to say, it's all going to be okay. I got this covered. No problem. And in fact, that monotone message delivered over and over again to people at different points in the emotional spectrum can sound really out of touch. Mm -hmm. So the trick I try to give founders, and let's face it, startup founders are not necessarily in most cases uh, the most in tune to the feelings of others as a mm. group in total. Um, right. And I think when I give them the trick of try and identify where the person you're talking to is, if they're in a really bad place, 
you don't go with the super hardcore cheerleader message. Just try and go one step up from where they are with optimism. And that helps to modulate the way in which you communicate the same message, which is, look, we need to stay focused. We need to relentlessly prioritize here. That's going to come through. But acknowledging mm-hmm. where they are, giving them space, checking in, doing things one-on-one, um, allowing the work-life integration that's happening to happen organically, and try and find a way through together. Because I truly believe moments like this are when people build resilience. Um, and the folks in the workforce today mm-hmm. have had, in many cases, especially at startups, know nothing but the... 10% year-over-year yeah. public market growth rate. They didn't live right. through the dot-com bust. They didn't live through the uh, you know, the 2008 financial crisis. And so mm-hmm. the idea that it will always be good at a macro level is just simply not realistic. And this is a really important chance to build some of that resiliency. It's interesting to say that a couple of thoughts. I think about sometimes, you know, they talk about there are no atheists in foxholes and and it's this is where leaders are really where they lead. It's easy to lead when everything's going well. It's tough to lead when the shit hits the fan, right? It's it's yeah. really, oh, no really question. hard. And no when question. you talk about when you talk about resilience, I was thinking one of the people we wanted to have on the show, if you know Angela Duckworth down at Penn and her book on grit and resilience, it's like it's a it's an important time and it's a hard characteristic and not everybody has it. But I mean, your points on on well-being and the micro things. So just to recap, by the way, when you say small micro things, you're talking about doing things that are one for yourself, micro things like give give food to a food pantry or food bank. And then there could be micro things towards other employees, other team members. Right. One could be work. One could be family that helps you feel in control that you're contributing. That's part of that portion of well-being, correct, is what you're saying? Oh, yeah. And I think there's some great examples. Um, Oxford Quantum Circuits is one of our OSI portfolio companies, and I've spent time um, with their leadership team. They've been sending little care packages to their employees' houses that just say, like, we're thinking about you. And I think if you check out their LinkedIn feed, um, OQC, that you can see even the employees sharing how great that is to receive. I tell folks, you know, a handwritten note uh, it's something that people keep with them for their entire career. And we'll talk about imposter syndrome later. But knowing yeah. and being able to acknowledge that this is a difficult time, appreciating folks for the things that they're doing and finding a way through that isn't the same way you would do it if you were all in the office together, you're traveling mm-hmm. to see each other, finding those kinds of opportunities. And as you said, the happy hours and stuff, it's fun. Um, Mm -hmm. and you might as well do that. I mean, we've done episodes of cribs where people show their offices and where they're working. Um, and you know, I've had calls with my daughter crawling on my back because we didn't have any other option. And the UK starts at four o'clock in the morning. So we should acknowledge those moments in a positive way. Got it. Got it. Cool. Let's, let's move on. Let's move into the next topic and talking about keeping teams motivated and focused. You're kind of touching on a well-being. So so what do we know, you know, when people, it's a challenging time for leaders, people running startups or other types of companies, you know, everyone's working remotely. What are your thoughts? And I know you've mentioned things like the GitHub remote manifesto, but what are some of the tricks and traps? How do you keep people motivated and focused at times like this? I, look, I think the, the fact of the matter is remote working is a known thing in as a portion of work. For most workforces, being a fully remote team all the time is new. And the reality is that a lot of our organizations are still blended. So Osler Diagnostics is in the midst of doing testing in a lab and building a diagnostics device. There's a number of people that can't be remote working. And so depending on your mix, you may have still a mix of some people in the office, as many people as possible from home, uh, or you're fully distributed and remote. What I would say to anyone now dealing with this for the first time is it's worth reading the GitHub remote manifesto. It's worth talking to people who have fully remote workforces. Um, Nesteg, which is one of your companies and, yeah, yeah. and one that, that I'm that investor, investor yeah, in yeah. and on the board, very put near, they're a fully remote team. And so I did a session with them where they talked about what would be their key pieces of advice to a team that's going remote for the first time. And then, of course, I put the challenge on them to say, now, how do you apply some of these things to your personal lives? Because they used to have 
real lives, right? And they always were comfortable with remote work, but now they've struggled with a different concept. So I think what I would say is when you're talking about remote work, anything ends up being easier. If you look at, especially what they say in the remote manifesto, if everyone is on the same medium. And so set some of those basic expectations. We want to see you on video, right? We realize that that means you might have a dog or a cat or a toddler or a doorbell and that's okay. But mm -hmm. if we can all be on the same medium, then we're going to inevitably have better communication. So that means like if, if we're on zoom, and my video's on and your video's on. Like if we're video, everyone's video on or everyone's video off, is that what you mean by that? Yeah, and, and it. it's not, doesn't have to be an always, right? Like it's just, if you set some of those standard expectations for your team, I think you're gonna end up having a better meeting. Your quality of the meeting will be better. Whereas if you're trying to be in a situation where some people are, in one way and another group is in another way, whether that's they're actually in the office or they're on the phone or they're on video, the more consistent the medium, the higher quality the meeting ends up being. Okay, and other things, so Greg, you know, motivation and focus, it's it's hard, right? Right now it's very defocusing and it's, it's hard to stay motivated for a lot of people. Any other interesting tricks and traps to, you know, it's got the same medium, that type of thing, that whole GitHub, you know, remote manifesto, uh, some of the other key elements that you really like from that perhaps? Well, I think this idea of work-life integration instead of balance is really happening. And so the fact of the matter is focus will be harder. So I think teams need to prioritize even more. And if you start at that highest level, how do you get through this and actually end up on the other end as a better company? The biggest thing that I look at is founders, startups generally are creative people. They have lots of ideas. So I'm sure you see this as you're working with them. Getting them yeah. to focus is really important. And this is almost a forcing function for focus. So if, if it's possible for folks to be, begin thinking about prioritization first and then figure out in what flexible, integrated ways with what's going on in the world, you can identify to make progress on that prioritized bit of work. I was talking to your team yesterday prepping for this call and they're saying, look, my work hours are now all over the place. And right. that's great. I mean, I, I think all the data is showing people are working more, which I have some concerns about, but they're able right. to do it in a way that can integrate with other things going on in their lives. So it's not necessarily a balancing act. It's that we're finally moving towards this concept of these things have to coexist and we have to be able to be flexible, which to me, flexibility is not... I'm working from home on Fridays because that's right, right. inflexibility. Flexibility it, it, is we have a really important meeting on Friday and I need to be with that client or be on that video call. And regardless of what's going on, I'm going to make that happen. Or Tuesday, my kid has a event that I want to be at. I'm going to make that happen. That's flexibility. All right. The next topic I want to talk about was imposter syndrome. I think as we talk about imposter syndrome, really important for you to define that. I mean, maybe the rest of the world knows. I was like, I Googled imposter syndrome. What's that? And I was like, oh my gosh, it is the thing. What's imposter syndrome? What's going on? What should startups and founders do? So I think the key thing that I'd say is imposter syndrome is this idea that people are going to find out that I don't really know what I'm doing. And I think the challenging thing about that is if you think about who tends to suffer from it, it actually isn't people who don't know what they're doing. Uh, and so there's a whole group of research that was done almost 30 years ago. They're actually looking at women who were extremely accomplished women, but felt like they were not able to do the roles that they were in fact qualified to do, that they felt like imposters as if they mm -hmm. didn't belong there and wouldn't take the next steps in their careers, et cetera. And this bit of research had folks take a test, a physics test, and they had rated the people across the scale at the very beginning to say, what is your level of physics knowledge? And based on what they had on that scale of actual knowledge, then they had folks take the test and they asked them afterwards, how do you think you did? And so they had to self-assess whether they think they did a good job or not. And the people with the most knowledge and the best scores on the test did not necessarily rate themselves <laughs> as thinking that they had done really well. 
And so imposter syndrome is this idea that I don't belong here. And that ends up really impacting startup founders because they're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. It involves a lot of risk. It isn't reinforced by climbing a corporate ladder in any way, shape, or form, right? So it's not like I was the manager of the department and then I became the director of the department. I got this award at the annual meeting. And so I feel like I'm ready to be the VP of the department. Hmm. It's totally different, right? And so why do so many of our founders that we work with suffer from this? It's a combination of high capability, back to the physics test bit, doing something that isn't proven or known, and having a, quite a bit of responsibility without the steps or the achievements, the validating factors along the way. Um, so that's what it is and why it kind of happens a lot with the folks that are probably on this call today. Remember, too, in our industry, right, startups around the world, the big expression, fake it till you make it, right? So fake it till you make it is pretty, you're playing imposter, you know, in a sense, even with the leadership. So maybe that's a little bit of where it comes from. But then, okay, so I've got, I have imposter syndrome. I feel like I'm doing something I'm really not qualified to do. How is it slowing founders down? What's the negative impact of that? I get it. What's the negative impact about it? And what do I do? How do yeah. I fix it? So a lot of the time I end up talking to a founder about something else. And then when you dig into it, you find out what's really underneath it, where their struggle is, is around this idea of, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And it is going to that deeper level if you're working with founders, if you are a founder, I think that's a really important thing to then be able to do. Um, but on top of that, the what can you do about it? I think if you are a founder yourself and you find yourself struggling with this, that's one piece. And then if you're working with a founder and you identify this, I think there's another piece there. Uh, but the first thing is to realize that this is potentially a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you feel this way, it likely means that you have good self-awareness and you're realizing that there are things here that you haven't done before. But there's a difference between feeling like an imposter or that these are hard things to solve and you don't necessarily have the answer and being a fraud. You are mm -hmm. not a fraud. So are, are there, can, can I ask, by the way, are there different, I think we talked about earlier, there's different personality types or types of imposters. What are those, you know, different types of imposters? Yeah, so if you think about where this comes from, right, there's the perfectionist, and that's the person who thinks that I am required to do things perfectly. Psychologically, there's actually a profile behind this where it normally involves some issues from childhood, et cetera. I realize we, we are saying it's founders therapy, but where some of right. these come from are also different places. Um, okay. The second one is the expert, and so they have a belief that, I have gotten here because I'm an expert in this, and thus I must know everything about it always, even though it hasn't been done before. So that's that's where it's a little bit of where it becomes very dysfunctional. Um, the soloist is the person who feels like they have to do it alone. We've all met that person, that founder, who is really hesitant to bring anyone along with them. Um, and you know they must do it all themselves, but that's inevitably impossible and they try to do things that they won't be able to do themselves. Um, you've got the superwoman, And so that's the, if I was competent, I would be able to do anything, which once again, very irrational in its core. Right. Um, and then you have the great mind. And so those are folks who think that if I have to try really hard at this, then I'm not the right person to do it because my mind has always figured things out very quickly. So this has a lot to do with why people have self-belief in the first place or confidence in the first place. And being in the situation of all of these decisions, all of this risk, a lot of uncertain things to have to do then inevitably impacts how they feel about themselves and being in the role that they're in. Got it. Okay, so I, I want to move into the next topic, but I just want to close this out. So what do I do to overcome it? So let's yeah. say I have imposter syndrome. Like, <laughs> what's the so, magic cure? Can I just well, take a pill? So, no. uh, yeah. I mean, I think we'll send out a good link. That's more than we could okay. probably ever cover today. But yeah, yeah. I tell people a little bit is this cognitive restructuring. Um, mm. And that is understanding why you have these thoughts, what's irrational about these thoughts, and then building to be in a place where you can manage your mind in the way that you think. Mm -hmm. So when you find yourself in this place, what is the way that you talk to yourself to deal with it? That's called cognitive restructuring. We could probably do a whole session on that. 
the other thing that I'd say is you really need straight talking advisors. So mm. I give the example of an email I got last summer from a founder that was in a really bad place, feeling a lot of pressure. Everyone's relying on me. I need to have all the answers. I've taken money from my friends and family to put into this business. I have some angel money now in here and I I'm overwhelmed. Like, and it was very clear, like, okay, got it. Now we have to have this talk. And when you have this straight talking advisor, they're not going to tell mm -hmm. you what you want to hear. They're not going to go to the deep, dark place with you. They're going to stop you and say, okay, look, you're here for a reason. Let's talk about why you're here because you're an exceptional technology leader. These people gave you their money because they believe in what you're doing and not that you have it figured out. If it was already figured out, you wouldn't be asking for their money. Right? Right. And anyone who's investing in a startup knows that there's risk. Your employees know that there's risk. And you hired those employees because they're exceptional. And if it doesn't work out here, you also know that those people will be able to find a job doing something else. So you start building back the self-belief with those elements of what is believable. Um, and then the last thing I would say is affirmation and artifacts. Um, so I have in my drawer pretty consistently um, things like this, which is an artifact for me, but it has a note in it from one of my former bosses um, and it's a daily reader. So for every day of the week, yeah, John Maxwell, daily reader, oh, cool. every day of the year, um, it has a thought on leadership to read. And if I'm in a dark place, I both read the front and the guy's name is Kevin Collins, if he's, if he's mm -hmm. out there listening today. But he was the first person that gave me a shot at being a business unit HR leader. And wow. he knew I was going to screw things up. And man, was I going to screw things up. But he also right. knew he was later in his career and he would have the chance to protect me if I screwed something up. And so I screwed things up and he protected me and I learned and he supported me and I got to make mistakes and grow. And I come back to that affirmation of he chose me knowing I wouldn't do it all perfectly because he believed in the potential of what could be. And I, I think having those affirmations and artifacts that refocus you and bring you out of a dark place so that you can lead your organization, this only serves to put you in a dark place and then your team in a dark place, which doesn't do what you ultimately want to do, which is lead through it. Next topic, hiring. So. If you're watching this live or slightly around the almost May 1st, 2020, everyone's remote. We're living in a COVID-19 pandemic world. What are your thoughts on remotely hiring new employees? What are the best ways and best practices around hiring? I mean, you could talk about hiring in general, and then what if we have to do everything over Zoom or Skype or whatever? Yeah, so I think, look, overall for a startup, you gotta build the right team. And that's an important thing, and I, and I think if you are hiring right now, you're in a really privileged position because the job market is, uh, you're going to find folks that want to kind of hunker in place. But quite frankly, there's going to be a lot of talented people in the market. Yep. So I would say, you know, set your standards high. Um, mm -hmm. And when you start thinking about principles around hiring, I think it's, it's important to know what you believe. There's an exceptional leader um, at Carta, who's the CEO, his name's Henry, and you can find him on Medium. We can send out a link to what he talks about. But one of the core things that he talks about is the difference and a number of different startup leaders have talked about this between your 10x employee and the person who's just kind of chugging along. And I think one of the benefits of being small, one of the things what I love about startups is you can build a workforce with a lot of 10xers and know that 10xers associate typically with other 10xers. So regardless of where you are, I think right now is an exceptional time to be hiring it if you're in that position. And I think about to do it remotely, it's important to try and mimic some of the things that you would find if you were in person with someone. So body language is really important and being able to read someone's body language and be able to set up a way in which that you can engage in a way that feels authentic, um, representing your brand. And so if my brand is cool, fun, startup, then having a branded t-shirt or something in my background that makes them see that like they're not coming to work at my house, although it's pretty cool, fun office, <laughs> but exactly. yeah, I mean, this isn't, right. but just to start to give them a vibe of the company or put your logo in the background of the Zoom call, like do something sure. that can really connect people with the brand. That's some of the experience that people get when they come into your office. Um, and I, I think 
then when you think about what you might have done historically, which might be a panel or three or four people interviewing, it can be really hard remotely to do that. And so I'd say try some things like doing more one-on-ones and saving that panel type thing, maybe for when that person is going to tell you about themselves and try and be flexible in a way to make it give some of the things that work in an office, but not just try and replicate that because the experience is completely different. Okay. I, w- I want to push back on one thing you said. Um, yeah. And that is, are we bringing bad interviewing habits now to a remote workforce, a remote interview situation? And I want to talk about blind auditions. So we had seen this. I learned this from somebody who works at the, or plays a timpanist, plays drums at the Philadelphia Orchestra, and talked to me about blind auditions. And I didn't know. I, he's like, we do blind auditions. Like, what's that? We put up a screen because when we're listening to musician audition for the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra, or Philadelphia Pops, it doesn't matter what they look like. And we don't want to know if it's a man or a woman. We are interested in their music and how great a musician are they to the point, by the way, that I learned that they put carpeting down because they can tell by if a woman's walking in heels, ooh, there's a woman walking up. We want no bias. So when we talk about doing Zoom video and what it looks like, are we bringing biases? Should that first call actually be, we do it on Zoom and there's video off because I shouldn't be influenced by things like that. I just be kind of curious, like, Anyway, I'd love to get your thoughts. Enough for me. Yeah, no. So, I mean, look, the orchestra example is is such a big one, right? Because once they implemented that, their gender balance in hiring musicians significantly changed. So it's mm-hmm. both like morally, of course, that's what you'd want to do. But then once you put that in place, you will get the best musician out of it. Which So I say to folks, when we start talking about gender balance or workforce balance or trying to think about diversity as it relates to your workforce, it has to be about how this is the right thing for the business and then design a process that works for that. So in a lot of roles, especially when they're technical roles, finding ways in which you can assess technical skills is really important. And Mm -hmm. if you have software developers, you know, having that first gate by which people get in being a a raw test that cannot be biased by a number of Mm -hmm. different factors. Um, is really important. At Expedia, we looked at a couple of different ways to do this. We took names off of resumes because, in fact, we weren't even getting women to the table to be part of the interview. Wow. Forget after that, right? And so we had to strategically source differently. But what we Mm -hmm. required was that we would present a balanced slate of candidates. And so we focused Mm -hmm. on gender balance when I was in the role because we figured if we could do one thing well, then that would have lessons that we could then apply more broadly. So we took anything off that would reference someone's gender. We also took off any college degrees because that ended up biasing the process too. And we said to Wait, folks, wait, wait. The degree or where they went to university? Like, well, did Expedia, did Expedia didn't have the requirement. You must have a minimum of bachelor's degree. Master's is more desired. Or, or what did you do there? I mean, what is the purpose of the college degree? If I can't, if I'm saying there's some kind of thing I'm expecting that you have, I don't necessarily need to see it on your resume. I should see it in your skill set, right? And so the question is, for what roles is a college degree required? Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, for some fields, we may require a license, right? If you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to work for, you're going to be a doctor, you probably need to go through some of the things I'll have to do. But if you're going to be a software engineer, I hate to break it to people, that is not a requirement. And in fact, you don't get the best people if you put requirements mm-hmm. in that you have no evidence actually lead to a better employee. So I'd say stick with the data. So we got a balanced slate, took names off of the resumes. We saw our selection rate then meaningfully shift. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is then people had to interview. And what we found happening even then, just because of the available talent in the market and because we didn't have great sourcing channels to the kind of talent that we wanted, and that talent, by the way, that talent pool of female software engineers in Seattle and San Francisco was in hot demand by everybody else. Mm -hmm. We started to do two other things. One, which was build an ecosystem that would raise all ships, not just try and get all the female software engineers over to Expedia. Like that actually, I mean, while that would be great, that doesn't necessarily Mm. solve a problem because someone else will just go steal those people from us at a different point. But if you don't have a balanced slate, your hiring outcomes will inevitably be biased anyway. 
So if you have one token candidate and nine of another type of candidates, so if I have one woman and nine men on a slate, the probability begins with 90% of the time I'm going to hire a man. And if right. you think that women need to be need to be able to beat the odds of one to nine, it, mm-hmm. it's crazy. You're not going to change the shape of your workforce or get more diversity if you believe, and you're not necessarily going to get the best players if you can't access the deepest talent pool. So access mm-hmm. the deepest talent pool, get them into as much of an unbiased process or not. But we can't kid ourselves by saying we're never going to actually see these people's faces or hear their voice. Sure. And, you know, combating your bias, acknowledging your bias. I love these implicit bias tests from Harvard that Mm -hmm. you can take online that at least identify it for you and do things to counteract your bias. I mean, there's more than just these kinds of biases. Uh, When I interviewed at Expedia, Henrik Schelberg, who was the president of Hotwire and Car Rentals, within the first five minutes said, okay, I have to stop myself because I love engaging with high energy people. And once Mm -hmm. I'm in an interview with someone with a lot of energy, I stop asking the questions and assessing the candidate on the criteria I'm supposed to assess on. Um, And so I think he's, I think he told me he loved me in the first five minutes, by the way. Um, And so then, but that was his way of just being able to transparently say, I have this bias. It means that I don't then follow the steps of my interviewing process and I make worse decisions coming out of it. So have a structure that you're using that combats your bias. But Mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit unrealistic to think we're going to be hiring people without knowing their gender or their name until, you know, we can all be bots somewhere in the cloud. Right. So uh, just a couple endpoints, then we'll move into the next topic. Two points I wanted to hit. First of all, on the on the orchestra and the blind interview and orchestra, apparently what they do at the very end is they do drop the curtain after they've done and say, okay, let's let's see what we're working with here. But they want to get the bias out of that issue in the beginning. So eventually, yes, you know, you're going to have to see the person, but try to pull it out of the equation. The other thing I just want to hit, you mentioned about Harvard and bias. We had on Dream It Live a couple of months ago, Laura Huang, who's a good friend, she wrote a book on this and it's all about implicit and explicit bias. And what she talks about, there's massive bias, particularly around women and, and minorities when they're pitching VCs and how to use that to your advantage. She has a very interesting technique where she turns around on her head. It's it's phenomenal. If you get a chance to read her book, it's Laura Wang at Harvard. Uh, she's very, very sharp. Anyway, I want to move to the next topic. So talk about hiring. I want to talk a little bit about firing. So so if I have to remotely lay off employees, which unfortunately a lot of companies and startups are doing, and the unemployment rates was on a dream it call this morning and somebody pointed out, Steve, those numbers, the 30 million people, that's underreported. I was like, why? It's like gig mm-hmm. workers aren't in that. People can't even mm-hmm. file. It's horrible. But yeah. again, there's best practices. Uh, the first company I was part of that I helped run and build, we sold to MCI. One of the best things I learned at MCI from the HR team was how to fire. It's a skill to do it well. It's a horrible thing to have to do. It's the number one thing. If you ask a manager, walk on hot coals or fire someone, they'll like, I'll go for hot coals. So how do you manage that difficult process of, of laying people off? And God forbid you have to do it over Zoom. Could you give us some of your you know, thoughts and wisdom on what to do and what not to do? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different ways to think about this. So there's the fact that you may need to remarkably shift the size or the distribution of your workforce. And to me, if that is going to be something that's going to persist for more than three months and at the longest more than six months, then I would be talking about doing a reduction in force. Because I think at the end of the day, you want folks to be able to get on with their lives and to ask them to wait for potentially six months to then be called back can be a little bit more challenging. I mean, given what's going on in the world, it's not as if that's happening to your workforce and it's not happening in a lot of other places. So I think Using a furlough strategy or a layoff strategy is something you need to think about. And that's more in the context of what's going on in your business. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But I would say I think you have a higher rate of avoiding the thing that everyone always tried to get away with uh, with when you had layoffs was, look, I don't need this person right now, but I'm going to really need them in nine months. As And I spent so much time hiring them because I followed that amazing process that Steve and Sarah talked about. And now I'm going to have to go through all of that again. So if a furlough strategy can work for you because you do anticipate that that is still a role, a skill set, a resource that you're going to need once some temporary uh, meaningful event like what's happening in the world changes, then think about that. If you are then having to do an actual reduction in force, um, 
what I say to folks, and I'm sure you saw this at MCI, is historical rack and stack setups. Mm -hmm. And what you want to make sure you don't do is lose your 10Xers. And who you impact really matters. The, there's a great article out there. I can't claim credit for a lot of these thoughts about, you know, your culture is who you hire, fire, and promote. And know that in times like this, the people who remain will remember the actions that you took and the way in which you did them. And so um, Henry, again, at Carta has a great article out there that we'll share in the communications he did with his team. But he started off by saying how he thought about making the decisions, because it is a moral obligation that you feel like you've made to these employees. And you have also made uh, commitments and you have obligations to your shareholders. And if your business doesn't survive, you can't meet either one. So the business decision you have to make is a decision that's about your business. And then the way in which you implement that decision has to be thinking about your people. And so when you can separate those things to say, what I have to do is with this criteria in mind, the the survival and the ability to get my team through this, and then how I do it, the way in which I support those employees, I help them find new opportunities, I communicate with them, I communicate broadly with the organization, is all with that individual person in mind. So when it comes to delivering the message, I'm a big believer that you have to be as open and transparent as possible. Keep it tight, keep it short, give people the opportunity to ask some questions. But I think in this kind of environment, you're not going to get the, why is this happening? Why me? People generally understand the business case. And I think then very quickly shifting to say, look, we've thought a lot about how we're going to be able to help you through this difficult time and actually spending time on how you might be able to get that person networked. There's a whole bunch of startups who have put up online their people and their skill sets and connected them with their network and other folks that may be hiring. If you're in a portfolio like OSI is, um, offering those folks and their skills and their resources, helping to promote them even within your ecosystem, I think is really important. You guys have that at Dream It too. Um, right. So that sends the kind of message as someone's leaving that we care about you and we want to continue to support you in a way that's reasonable um, and it isn't about your performance. Now, we can talk a little bit about firing, which is a slightly different topic. Um, right. And I look at that really differently. Okay. Well, let's, I don't know if we have time to go to firing. I did want to hit one other thing. I know there's one other thing that you you had mentioned you wanted to talk about, and I think we can fit it in right in here. Mm -hmm. You know, that you said a lot of times employees, if you're doing a riff or a reduction in force, they're not going to be overly surprised. I think you love Paul Graham, who's one of the founders of Y Combinator YC, that does a great job. And and you talked about default dead or alive, right? Like, that are you going to be laying off people because you're in default dead? Do you want to hit that real quick? Dustin just brought it up. Uh, You know, talk to us about that a little bit and if we can fit it into the part of this conversation. Sure. So I think, you know, the fact of the matter is when I talk to a lot of startup founders and I say, okay, so when do you run out of money? You know, when do you, like, what's going to happen? And Mm -hmm. the number of them who do not really have a plan, uh, a realistic plan, and don't really know what has to happen in order for them to remain alive, right? So default, you keep doing what you're doing now. Are you dead or alive? And, and at what point? And what are you doing to then manage that? And I think Paul Graham, I mean, these these articles are so meaningful. I think they're if you put them all together, it's a little bit of a Bible. And I'm like, why didn't I come his, up with some of this stuff, right? His essays are phenomenal, yeah. I mean, they're, they're so tight. And the, the reality is that the things that you do long before you're in that situation are so important. And if you say like, look, I'm going to need an investor to come in and save me. Okay. Well, what does that investor want to see? And how are you reflecting that in your roadmap? And if you need revenue or you need that big partnership deal to come through, this all comes back to that prioritization bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think startups can create something moderately appealing that's new and novel and get some traction early on. But, you know, I I know you guys talk a lot about the crossing the chasm bit. Mm -hmm. If you don't, in fact, think about some of these inflection points that every startup will hit and you don't plan for them diligently before you're in the rut, then you end up defaulting dead. And it could have been prevented, right? You could have made different decisions. And I think a, a pandemic like what's going on now the resilience coming from this, as well as I think what startup founders are learning, which is it's not 
all in an economic environment that's always going to go up. And once you know that, you start really thinking about resources in a different way. Um, and you stretch before you hire and you really think about the skill sets that you need. Uh, and I think if you look at some of these really experienced uh, VC guys, you know, and girls, thankfully, that's mm -hmm. starting to happen yep. a little bit more, too, is they talk about the startups that have been successful and some of the consistent things that they do. Um, and I think for any of us to not learn from that wisdom and take those things into account as we're in an environment like this is to miss even the opportunity to interact with them would be better, but there's stuff's out sure. there and it's so important to think about. No, I, I agree. By the way, on this, the note, just somebody that we um, commit came on or is going to come on to dream it live coming up in, I think it's May 13th, Steve case, we're going to have on dream it live. You know, talk about an entrepreneur that's been around the block several times and to share wisdoms and thoughts and ideas on what people can do. And there'll be some other things we talked to him about. I wanted to mention just one other thing you said, you know, startups back to the default dead or alive need to have a plan, you know, and if you don't have a plan, that is a plan, right? You've made your decision. And I think one of the challenges for a lot of founders right now is, well, I had a plan. Well, yeah, the world changed. You need a new plan, you know, like Custer, Custer had a plan. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you need to update your plans. So shit yeah. happens, unfortunately. Okay, what I want to do, we have about five or six questions. Should come up on the screen. Dustin produces. And again, thank you for Dustin's help today and Victoria and a couple other people dreaming. It's a, this is very much a team effort when we put on Dream It Live. First question I wanted to bring up is how do we best get HR advice like yours if we're a small startup? You talked about Nest Egg, which you're an investor and advisor in. Like if, if, if I'm a startup and I'm looking for HR help and I'm three, five, six people, I'm not bringing in somebody like you. I can't afford you. What do I do? I think is what this question is. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I would take that even beyond HR, right? Like there's some really core operational and strategic support that you need that you're not going to be able to access in a full-time way, right? And I take HR talent advice and split it into two categories. 80% is the commoditized Stuff, that it doesn't matter who you do. Payroll is cheap and easy. You just need someone who doesn't screw it up. HR information systems are basic, inexpensive, SaaS systems, easy. Don't confuse that support that you need that can be easily outsourced very inexpensively and is a commodity with the strategic guidance that you need as you reach inflection points about building an executive team or thinking about your board or things like that. So I think if you, what I see a lot of startups making the mistake doing is they hire someone who's exceptional at the 80% and the commoditized repeatable work or recruiting. They're an exceptional recruiter. And then they have them start doing this other 20% thing, which is a completely different skill set. Or you'll have someone that wants to hire someone like me, who's a little more strategic and focused on the longer term, and then say, oh, and we have this other 80% over here. We can't hire two people, so you're gonna do that too. Well, first of all, I'm terrible at it. I'm like the worst you could ever find for that. And second of all, you would completely overpay for that. So I'm a big believer in this fractional executive thing um, okay. or identify trusted advisors that you can go to if you if you need a piece of work. I also think there's so much available out there on the mm -hmm. topics. It's in many ways just trying to synthesize it down to what makes sense for you. And I'd be much more a fan of doing something like what Nest Egg does. I mean, they have some they have support for the ongoing day-to-day -day kind of stuff. And probably once a quarter, I end up spending two to four hours with that team on a core strategic topic, which is potentially about scaling into new markets or compensation or transitions on the executive team. And we, I know the business, I'm involved, I'm engaged. And what they then need that for is pretty isolated. Uh, and they're willing to do the work. They just need to access directionally how they should be thinking about it. The framework and then they can take it away. To me, that's way cheaper than having either your commoditized resource do something they're not qualified to do and potentially send you in the wrong place or vice versa, having more of that strategic person that you don't actually have the ability to make use of. Got it. Okay, let's move to the next question. Our next question is, and again, it probably should come up and I'll read it to you. Do you think teams will now expect to have more work from home days? I, for instance, by the way, I'm just thinking dream it. We have work from home Fridays, right? Do, do you think now, again, do you think now teams will expect to have more work from home days? So I think it depends on your business. Um, this 
to me has been an opportunity for all of us, I think, who had some time that we went into the office to be dying to get back to the office. So (laughs) there's a little bit of, you know, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. But I think Mm -hmm. the theme that's going to happen is really around this work-life integration. And Mm -hmm. what we have removed through this process is a stigma around where the best work can happen, right? Where productivity happens. I love your law firm example from earlier. You know, we're billing more, the quality of work Mm -hmm. may be higher. And so why would we shy away from this? Why are we paying for all this real estate space? And so I think every business has an obligation here as we're potentially going to even have the opportunity to go back into our offices to say, what is the purpose of our office? What do we like about it? What do we miss when we're not there? And what has worked about what's happening now? If you go back to what we talked about with the remote manifesto and GitLab, the, what works is that everybody's remote. So today, everyone on your team is doing this remotely. And so you're all right. modulating your behavior. Once you get into a place where half the people are in the office or nine people for a meeting are in the office and one person's on, person's on the phone, we're back to the inequity of the medium by which we're communicating. And it will not mm-hmm. be as high oh, quality, right? Good point. And so right. like, if you think about why GitLab works is everybody's remote. And so- right, it's an equalizer. Right. Yeah, it's a complete equalizer. Right. There's there's no difference in the people participating in the room versus on the phone. So I I believe in stepping back for your business's unique situation and saying, what is the purpose of our office? What are the new rules we want to set for our team? And do we even need to have rules? Um, so at Osler, a good example of this is Tuesday is the day we want everybody to be in. And we do some things on Tuesday and from a scheduling perspective so that we don't have folks going back and forth or trying to figure out what day that everyone will be around or who's in the office when. So we say to folks, we want you to make every effort to be in physically on a Tuesday, regardless of what your role is. Uh, We used to share a meal together on Tuesday too, which probably won't be happening for a while unless they're in little takeout containers, but things like that, that work for your workforce and don't become a a binary decision of it's either this or it's that. How do we integrate these two things so that they get, we get the best out of both depending on our unique business circumstance. Okay, cool. Thanks. Let me transition to the next question. I think it actually flows kind of nicely. The next question up is what should we do now to get ready for the fall? If there's another outbreak, you know, we're, we're work from home. Now we start going back to the office sometime in the summer and we've got masks on and then there's an outbreak. Like, I guess the question, you know, what, what can we do to prepare just in case, or should we do anything? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great question. I mean, if you're an investor, you should definitely be investing in Osler diagnostics, but separate topic. <laughs> okay. uh, that, what is, that- what does Osler do again? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Osler, Osler's a point of care diagnostic device. So if you think about why these outbreaks are so painful, uh, not having the ability to test and then track and treat is obviously at a core on top of if there is another outbreak, let's say we get to the point of having a vaccine, and and I of course hope that 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 happens uh, regardless. But Vaxitech is, on, is obviously on, on on Oxford the way. vaccine, right? There yeah. you go. Uh, and yeah. so we're excited about that. But you know, it could be another meaningful health event, right? Health related mm-hmm. event. And I'd hope that both politically, economically, we learn from this one, both as mm-hmm. a workforce and as just society as a whole in what we would do again and what we wouldn't do again. But I think the idea of understanding that you need a place where your employees, if they're going to come into the office, can be safe. And, you know, my husband's an environmental health and safety leader for a very large manufacturing company. And I think there's a lot to learn from those companies, both, uh, both about this particular situation going on, but then more broadly about what are the things we should be doing in our office uh, that keep our employees healthier. And that to me is a core learning, no matter what, because it may not be COVID. It could be a really strong influenza outbreak, which is much more terrifying for our kids. Right. And so for those of you you who come into a work environment or commute into work, it could be something that impacts a completely different part of the population. So thinking about long-term having some of those safety wellness, um, and health related things as part of your overall strategy, I think make it so that you can do something within your workforce in your office. I also feel like we have the burning platform 
where folks aren't going to say, what do you mean you want me to use hand sanitizer? What do you mean that I need to wipe down my equipment at the gym when I'm finished on the treadmill? You know, things like that, I think are not going to be such a taboo thing to now deal with. So let's do them because they're good things to do regardless and can help immune compromised people, people with young kids who don't have the immunity or, or may not have had that opportunity yet. Um, and of course, invest in the folks that are really doing things in a unique way that will make it so that we can deal with these things as they potentially come forward. It's not this pandemic. It's, as you said, the next one, right? right. Um, and being right. prepared for that. Okay, just three more questions, and then we'll wrap it up and, and hit a couple of things. So the next question, oh, interesting, we talked about firing, right? So if letting people go, how do we best help with the others cope with survivor guilt? Seems like a... That's, that's not your uh, outsourced 80% HR kind of issue payroll, right? So yeah, it's no, the team it's, that it's remains. Not. Yeah, it's not. So I, I think I come back to this. This is about how you communicate to your organization about the way in which you made the decision. And mm. a lot of survivor guilt comes from this, like, why not me, right? And so you think right. about the the clinical representation of survivor guilt, which is when, when you know, I, I mean, you talk about a really scary event like a airplane crash or a car crash. And there are people meaningfully impacted by that either with their lives or their well-being. And there's those who aren't, but we're in the same event. So why did I end up being the one left here? And the more in which you can communicate the decisions that you had to make and the way in which you made those decisions. And so the um, Henry at Carta talked about, you know, there were these two functions that based on our revised plans, were not needed in the same way, right? And that's how we made the decision. Why would you have survivor guilt if you're not in one of those functions, right? So that's one way to kind of get around a meaningful group. If it's within a group and someone's a high performer and the low performers are gone, I'm a big believer in dealing with things with a lot of transparency to say, look, we had some really difficult decisions to make. And I want to be very clear with you about how difficult it was to make those decisions, how I made those decisions. Uh, But I also want to tell you that as we thought about this team, we thought about your skills, the way they create value for our customers, the contribution that you have across the group. And I need you more than ever here to be the person that we know you are and contribute at the highest level and to know that we're going to be taking really good care of the folks that are moving on with their careers and ensuring that they land in a good spot. And I don't want you to, wow. to feel like you have to worry about that because we have structurally solved for that for our workforce. Wow, that's a great answer. By the way, I've been thinking a couple times an answer you've given. Have you ever watched the Showtime show Billions and Wendy Rhodes, oh the God. performance coach? What, one okay. day, you and I, as a show, we should unpack that and see, is it bullshit? Is it real? Is the things yeah, that she said. And- uh, I would tell you, uh, I guess I'm trying to remember who introduced me like this. Maybe it was Yakin. Yeah. I wonder if Yakin's on. Yeah. Uh, I was doing a session with the Nestle team and he said, if you want to know what Sarah does with CEOs for a living, and I think my mom who might be watching, uh, who has a lot yeah, of questions, yeah. what it is that I do for a living. Uh, I heard yeah. my husband once say that she's just on the phone talking shit about people all day long, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hit two more questions because I know we're running really late, but we have to talk about that. We'll talk about so we'll do a separate like rip apart a show as live or something. Okay, next question, just two more left. Um, this is a little bit different than some of the others, right? So for hiring, what are your thoughts on how to do reference checking well? Mm. I, it's a bit random, but you know, yeah, all, no, all... checking I think is really important. So especially in more senior level roles, this starts to get really tricky, right? Because Uh, I think, you know, at a junior level, I'm very much so a believer in the leader themselves making the phone call to the reference. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I like before I make that phone call, if I, if it's someone I'm hiring to my team, I'm going to say to the person that I'm interviewing, Hey, tell me about the most difficult piece of feedback you ever got and who it came from. Um, and, and what they had to share with you. And then, of course, as we get to referencing, rather than, and I write down through my interviewing process, the people they reference, right? And so if they talk about, and I'll ask things like, tell me about a time when you had to solve a really difficult problem and and what ended up happening, or talk to me about a time that you failed. And so I try and get both the positive, which people, of course, are Mm -hmm. abundantly sharing with you, and then also the really challenging thing. And then when it comes time for referencing, I like to play a little psychological trick And I say, hey, you know, you mentioned a couple of people in our interview that you've worked with. 
I'd love to reach out to them. Would you be comfortable with that? And they said, oh, yeah. Sure. And I said, okay, so specifically, <laughs> I'm going to be reaching out to like, you know, the person right. that was difficult on that. I, I mean, I, not that crazy. Right. But I think what you want to be able to understand about someone is not just, you know, their favorite boss ever, or in my right. case, Kevin Collins, who's going to tell you I walk on water because he would right. just never tell you anything else. Whereas, you know, I, I worked for a really, really incredible leader, Ranji Nagaswamy, who I think sees me for the whole picture of who I am. And for people you're hiring, if they're authentic people and they want to represent themselves authentically, they want to introduce you to folks who can give you holistic feedback um, about who they are. So if you can find those examples in the interview and you are the one then saying, hey, I'd like to reach out to these people rather than saying, give me your reference list and it's their sixth grade teacher and their neighbor down the street and, you know, Billy Bob who they paid $25 online to take your phone call. Um, that's not what you want, right? It's not meaningful and ask meaningful questions, not the stupid ones that they give you, you know, through some system, like did so-and-so show up at work on time? Um, so I think there's some really standard reference questions that you can ask. Um, and I always say at the end, is this someone that you would hire again on your team? And if so, in what role? Because I think that's really important. Um, right. And and then I always end by saying, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you think it's important for me to know about Steve? Like, does right. he have some weird habits? Does he chew gum really loudly? <laughs> you know. So right. I try and get some of those things in there that I think give you a better and give you knowledge, not a yes or no. They give you if yes, here are some things to watch out for, or if yes, you're actually getting a better understanding of this person and how to be a good leader for them when they join your team. Got it, okay, great. Last question is from Christine Steen, if I pronounce that correctly on LinkedIn yeah. asked. Hi, it's a little long, but I'll read it. When hiring, when hiring a CEO, doesn't the executive presence have some relevancy, which means making some assessments and appearance? Um, does it impact fundraising? Yeah, so yeah I'll, I'll this read is that great. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, this is a great Got question. That. And Chris okay. is actually an exceptional headhunter for startups. And so for any of oh, you cool. um, who are out there, yeah, Chris, her name is actually Chris Steen. So I did not plant okay. this question, by the way. Okay. Um, look, right. look, I think appearance is an interesting thing. And, and here's what I would say, which is, mm -hmm. I think that there are some things that are basic. And those things are hygiene, cleanliness, um, I, you know, do you have holes in your clothing? Are you, are you showing up in an authentic way that is the best representation of yourself? And to me, you know, there's the extreme of that, which is simple things like there's a bias towards taller men. Taller men make more money, get promoted more. Um, and even when they've normalized for other factors, that that is something that people have and perceive. So what I would say is I'd start with having a basic expectation that from a professionalism perspective, a person will not show up in a way that would embarrass you. Okay. But then you have to say to yourself, if they show up in a suit and tie and we're a tech startup, is that appropriate or inappropriate? I'd say that probably hurt your fundraising. You know, I right. was on a call a few weeks ago with a guy who was pitching for a startup in, he was, he was in his house and his, he had a button down shirt on and it looked like it was choking him. And I'm like, why are you in the <laughs> tie on video conference? Right. So it, right. it's, I think appearance can't be a distraction. And if it's a distraction, it wouldn't necessarily change my mind if it's the right person. But I'm, of course, the kind of tough love HR leader who's going to say, hey, look, like the jeans where the hole is so big, I can see your undergarments isn't going to work mm -hmm. for me. Um, yeah. Or, you know, it's and it's not working for me, not because I, I have a problem with your undergarments, but it, it's more about it's distracting from your content. And I think people's mm -hmm. appearance needs to not distract from their content, um, but also it, either from a being very flamboyant about it or not. Um, so I know since we're closing, I'll, I'll give you a pretty funny story that uh, I, I experienced once in an interview. I had interviewed someone over the phone. I'd never seen them in person. And it was for a call center job in upstate New York. And uh, we had a- Well, that's, a that's fair. A, yeah. A phone yeah. interview for a call center job. Okay. There you go. And so I go up to meet this candidate and a couple of others. And I, I had at least thought this person was going to be in the running. And I come back from lunch and they're in the waiting room, uh, walk in. And 
I meet this lovely gentleman and he has himself physically altered to look like a vampire. So his teeth have been shaped into fangs. He's wearing a big black coat. Wow. Uh, his hair is slicked back and dyed. And I'm like, okay, I got to get through this interview because exactly as I said to you, if this ends up being right. the right person, I can have the conversation of, look, coming to work dressed as uh, like physically altered to look like a vampire is a little terrifying and distracting mm -hmm. again from the work. So right. I'm like, I'll get right. through it. I will take my own advice and then I'll have that conversation if it ends up being the right person. Uh, it didn't end up being the right person. So uh, that, that was one saving grace. But of course, all my HR friends after the fact were like, well, did you ask if he was going to work the night shift? Or oh, oh, oh my so goodness! I'm like, wow. they, they had so many. Like, would you like an office or a coffin? You know, they had so many oh, good jokes that came from the experience. That you know, appearance as long as it's not a distraction, I'm all in. Got it. That was interesting. All right, let me let me go in and and wrap things up. I really appreciate. It. We've gone really long with you today. A little little over an hour, so it's greatly appreciated. I think we we talked about we might even have you on again, maybe in June, because there's some other topics. You had a long list of things you wanted to talk about in HR and these. Not only it's not the tactical side of HR, it's the strategic things that you're hitting on. I know there's a lot of topics um, we'd love to talk to you about. So I think we'll have you back to wrap up things. Catch our upcoming and past Dream It Live episodes. You can go to dreamit.com/live. Also, please. Please check out the Dream It Dose, which we run on YouTube. They're short videos. They're five to seven minutes. I think Dust and I are going to be creating a few new ones next week. They're all pragmatic techniques, things we see startups make mistakes with all the time. They're five to seven minutes. Sarah, thank you for joining us today, sharing your wisdom. We greatly appreciate it, giving your wisdom to so many great startups. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Steve.